you kidding me? The only like reasonable thing to do is get Zoom. Oh. <laughs> After all this thought about it, you literally could have been doing this for a year. It was just Zoom. Everyone's just using Zoom. Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Making It an Opera is a podcast about what happens when we let go of what we're told success looks like and we start asking ourselves what we really want. It's about what happens when we stop trying to fit in a box, or a if you're an opera, and we start making art. It's about what happens when permission becomes less important than creation, and this is the first interview. Holy crap! Finally! So I've been telling people I've had the idea for this podcast for the last three years since I stopped trying to make it an opera. But really, the genesis of this podcast, the idea that I knew people who were having experiences about how to lead their own lives as artists, started way back in 2011 when my friend Craig McLaughlin went viral with the recording of a rehearsal with his ensemble, Sounds of Zamar. It was a praise song, Better is One Day. It reminded me of the early 2000s, sitting in the college house at church back in Columbus, Georgia, Trey sitting at the piano, a room full of music students singing and improvising to songs like this. His musical genius and his love for God and all of us on complete display. Now here he was, making music with his friends, displaying his love for God, for the music, for everyone in the room. And now the whole world was getting to hear it, getting to be part of it. There have been 6.2 million views of that one video over the past 10 years. From there, he's traveled the world, giving clinics on how to sing gospel music to hundreds of people at once. He and the Sounds of Zamar have put out a studio album that turns 10 years old in a year, and it's still selling as if it was just released. He's toured with Sounds of Zamar, creating the Zamar experience from coast to coast in the U.S. But what moved me so much about that first viral video? It wasn't just the musicianship, which was masterful. It wasn't just the sincerity of the music, which was profound. It was getting to see my friend shine in all his radiance after being around in the early 2000s when he was in the season of questioning whether he really wanted to be an opera singer, trying to figure out what he really wanted to make. It was a season I wouldn't reach for another decade. Our conversation was such a treat for me. To get to see my friend in the light of all his wisdom he's picked up from years of living in his truth, of expressing his art and using his training in a way that builds community. I hope you enjoy listening. Yeah. Uh-huh. Better. 
Yeah, thank you for doing this with me. I couldn't imagine a cooler way to start this. And I have it in my intro and I'll read that. I'll put that in later. But I think one thing I didn't put in there is just, I think what really got to me in 2012, I'll be honest, like the first couple of times I watched it, I it was almost so hard to watch only because it was like watching somebody shine and be in their power and make their art unapologetically in this attitude of service all of these things that like I did not understand how to do yet and I knew on some level that I wanted to that like so deep down I wanted to get that and six years of education had not gotten me there two years at that point of professional work in theaters had not gotten me there. I was really doing stuff out of insincerity, but for all the wrong reasons. Right. And I like watching someone do it with sincerity for all the right reasons, for these reasons of service that you talk about are just, I finally get it. <laughs> It only took me almost a decade to like really be like he got it and he got it so so early <laughs> like not early but like it's been it's been part of your path for so long and and so I kind of want to I would like to rewind all the way to the beginning like what what brought you first to singing and then to directing and then to opera, because I know you grew up in the church. Yes. Um, I think as early as I can remember, I've always been singing. Um, I think that around four was when I really started to lock into that being what I wanted to do, especially once I figured out you know how people it's it's around three or four when people are like I want to grow up and be this I want to grow up and be that that was kind of the age where I was like yeah I'm gonna be a singer and, and nothing else like that there was nothing else for me um my mom is artsy um and very creative and she was also the advisor for the gospel choir at the college where she works and she's the assistant registrar at uh HBCU here and I grew up around that and being in the gospel choir rehearsals and then church. So singing has definitely been a huge part of who I am and a huge part of my journey. It wasn't until high school that I was introduced to classical music beyond what I would hear my mom play or, you know, watching GPTV. They had a lot of great performances on there. I used to watch that stuff even before I understood it. Um, but when I got to high school, I went to a performing arts magnet school here. And that was when I cheated my way into the advanced choir because he wanted to put me in advanced men's choir. And I was like, 
I want to be an advanced mix course. So I erased what the teacher put down and put advanced mix choir. And I got it on my schedule. And that was kind of the beginning of me being introduced to actually reading music and um, hearing and learning classical music on another level. And then all of my educators at that time, with the exception of a few, were kind of pushing me towards doing classical music because I could make the sounds. Mm -hmm. So it's like all of my classical teachers were like, you should do this because this will be legitimate. And mm -hmm. they do that. that was, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of me uh, deciding I wanted to be an opera singer. And that's actually how I ended up at CSU with you. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of how you came to classical music was really it was a lot of people saying this is something you would be good at is it something you really saw yourself in or was it more like other people telling you it was going to be something you would be good at now that I look back I feel like if I had done classical music full-time like only that I would have settled because I think by then, I thought I was going to be this big R&B singer, right? I was like, I need to be famous by the time I'm 16. And then a lot of things happened, but that didn't quite work out. Then I was like, you know what? By the time I'm 18, <laughs> it still didn't work out. So I think to have people that I respected musically tell me, we think that this is something that you're amazing at and that you would have a successful career doing it. Um, I think it made me entertain the possibility and kind of lock into that as my only way of being legitimate because clearly now I can't be this big R&B singer because I'm past the, uh, the window of opportunity for that. So um, I don't think I ever really bought into it. Mm. I don't think I really bought into it. I think I wanted it, but not enough. Because, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, girl, classical, to be a classical singer professionally is extremely difficult in terms of what you do with your voice, how you sleep, how you eat. Like, I have a friend who is an opera singer who doesn't touch doorknobs. Like, he just won't touch doorknobs because he doesn't want to risk getting sick. Like, I know you're talking about. <laughs> right. So, it's like at the end of the day, I still want to be able to sing what I want to sing when I want to sing because I sing every day. Every day. Mm -hmm. And it might be gospel, it might be RB, it might be bluegrass, it might be hard rock. You never know because I like so many things. I wanted mm -hmm. to be able to do those things and do them well, but also um, not live my life afraid of what should befall me, lest mm -hmm. my Mozart or Puccini be a little raspy because <laughs> of whatever. You know what I mean? It's just, there's so many factors. I, and kudos to people who do classical music because full time, because I still do it. It's just mm -hmm. not my main gig. And even I wanted I'm to ask, are you are you still singing some classical stuff? So a lot of times Christmas time, I end up doing the Messiah, the baritone uh, arias or the tenor. 
either or. They they kind of book me for whatever's needed. I've even done the mezzo stuff a few times. Um, so that's always fun. But even then, like just the preparation I have to do for it to make sure that vocally, like I don't do this or that this Sunday I'm not going to sing at church. So I just want to make sure that everything is tip top. There's a lot that comes with it. So doing classical music, it's a serious profession. You have to be locked into it in a way that I wasn't willing to commit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, in my experience, it was really, to me, it was committing to it as a job. Mm -hmm. And I didn't always take care of myself like I know, like our mutual friend does. But it is, it is a lot of committing to your health and being kind of boring some nights. Some nights, right. Mm -hmm. I I was always curious because when I knew you and I remember you talking about listening to like the Saturday Met broadcasts and I... I kind of feel like back then I should have realized that, I don't know, like, I do like to sing opera. I never really listened to much of it, I'll admit. And so, like, hearing you say that, I was like, oh, man, like he must really want this. And, like, I have never sat down and listened to the whole Met broadcast. <laughs> I might get crucified with my first my first podcast saying that, but, like... I would rather get up and be practicing it and like doing it than, or watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or watching it. I think there's so much for me, I get so much more seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I just feel like I have watched over the past. We have known each other 17 years. We have. I, I counted that up. I was sitting there like, how long? Actually, no, 18 years. I'm 36 now. And seeing you, it was November of 2019. And you came to Berkeley and gave us all the Zamar experience with Sounds of Zamar. And it was another one of those moments where I was like, he has completely unfolded into all that he is. And I and I couldn't help but like think of Trey in our Friday masterclasses with our teacher and what a different person I was seeing on stage. Yeah. And yeah. I want to, I've always wanted to talk to you about that. Like what the, it's not even a question I have written down here and I don't know why, because like, what was that process for you? I mean, some of it is growing up, becoming comfortable in our skin but like, what was that process for you going from going from this place of not really being seen while you were being a classical singer and like to a place where you see yourself and everyone sees you and your light shines so bright on that stage? Yeah, that that's a really good question, Gwen. Like, you did that, girl. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it, it was... It was necessary, first of all. I think that period or time in my life is part of what keeps me humble and Mm -hmm. definitely made me realize the importance of hard work, whether you are noticed or whether it's acknowledged or not. Mm -hmm. Give the work, do the work. You'll reap the benefits later. But 
Um, that whole time in my life was just very, it was great and terrible um, because I have known since I was a little kid that I was special. And I used to sit in my mom's room and talk to God, like legit talk to God. Didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't doing something that I was taught. It was really, really natural. And those are some of my earliest memories. And I remember being a little kid and God telling me that he was going to make my name great and feeling it in my heart, like this is what I want. And it's not even about me. It's because I want to help other people. And then to go through middle school and high school and be the star person in whatever I was musically. I was the main person, right? I, or either among the main people and then to get to CSU and pretty much be told, yeah, you, you suck um, at every turn while giving my best effort. <laughs> I was not used to it. It made me doubt a lot of things that I thought were certain in my life, but I decided to put my head down and do the work, even though it was tough, even though a lot of times I was disappointed in myself and feeling like I was disappointing um, everyone who was around me or on my team or pouring into me, my teachers, just feeling like I was a huge disappointment but continuing to do the work and continuing to give my best and to learn everything I could. Even when I failed, I still went back to try again to make it better. And now I feel like I am reaping what I've sown in those years. So I always knew that I had what I am now inside of me. I just needed it to be brought out, but I also think that I needed it to be shaped. And I think those years at CSU going through what I went through with our vocal department, which were not all bad. So I don't want listeners to think that it was just this terrible journey. It wasn't, it, we, mm -hmm. we had good teachers. We had good training. In fact, better training than a lot of music students that I meet. We had excellent training. So I'm grateful for that, but I, I'm more so talking about when you've been good at something most of your life and you walk into a situation where someone tells you you're not as good as you think you are and this is what you need to get together, I think you have a choice. And I could have said, you know what, forget y'all. I know I'm good and left. You know what I'm saying? I could have just quit. Or I could have decided to go through the motions, not give it my full effort, just do what I had to do to get this degree. But I decided to do the work. And I feel like because I made that choice then, that now I'm in a position to where I get to call the shots in my career and people bring me in for my special set of skills. They, they're not bringing me in because of what they perceive I can do classically. They're bringing me in to do stuff that I've always just naturally been able to do. My classical training just shaped it and made it a little bit better, um, more presentable, um, more organized and polished. So it has been quite a journey, but I'm grateful for all of it. The good, the bad, the ugly. I'm so grateful you were there. I mean, I think, I think too, we had a really great program 
And part of what made that program great was the people who were in it, not mm-hmm. just the teachers. The teachers were awesome, but the way that we lifted each other up. Yeah. And I think um, hearing you say that you think that you felt like a disappointment just it like gets at my heart because when I think back on those classes and I like we did CSU was a small program and I don't know what where it is right now but it was a small program like mm-hmm. when I say I went to school with somebody like I went to school with them with I was them. with them all yeah. the time <laughs> every day almost every class and mm-hmm. your presence there and a few of the other people you were a leader in in helping people feel seen helping people feel supported to this day I hear someone just like tearing up an aria singing <laughs> with their heart and I swear to you I will put my hand up like <laughs> like I'm in church because it's yeah. what you always did you did not yeah. care what our teacher thought you were you were like yeah. you'd be in there at the back just waving your hand and I was like and we just all started doing it <laughs> like yeah, we really did and that just that kind of support that that you were for all of us and I think it really shaped how we have gone on and and done all of our work wherever we've gone because I know we have all retained that feeling of when we're making art it's in community yeah yeah and that's something that I really feel like your presence there helped foster and I I want to just acknowledge you for that thank you I'm so grateful grateful and that's like you can go back to like creative impressions and leading creative impressions and the difference between what it was to make music with creative impressions and then go into like university chorale and sing. And um, I'm interested in that difference, but there's also some stuff you said about like the difference between Western classical music and gospel. And I would love to, I would love to hear you say more about that. Well, creative impressions, um, was, uh, well, you know, but it was a community group here that I joined in high school. I was in it in high school. And then by the time I got to be like a junior, I was the student director of that group. The Crev Impressions was set up a lot like an HBCU university chorale. So historically Black colleges, universities, typically their university chorale does great with making the sounds, the classical sounds. But a lot of times they also have that other side too, because the teachers are African-American and usually understand that most of these kids didn't come up making these classical sounds like their culture, their heritage, um, their community background typically would be church or something else, you know, R&B, Motown, but all of that stuff came out of the church, all those musicians. So really you get a good mix. And so in Creative Impressions, I think she did a good job of fostering our natural ability that came from what we just knew coming up as Black singers while teaching us to make the classical sounds. Whereas in a university program, although Dr. Marchetti's was the bomb, the (laughs) bomb to me, um, you didn't always get the the normal sound or African-American sound, I don't feel was always embraced. In, in that setting. But I also was very good at understanding where I was 
<laughs> so I didn't have an expectation, you know, for it to be embraced. I think it was definitely like night and day in a lot of ways, uh, stylistically. Um, but I enjoyed it. You know what I'm saying? And so it, it was really, really good. I think that a lot of times Western classical music can brainwash us. And, and the way I say that to mean that I remember our teachers telling me and not because they were trying to be ugly. Several, not just our main voice teacher, but several teachers telling me, you are so gifted if you want to have a legitimate career. These are real words they would say to me. Legitimate career, this is what you need to do. This is the path you need to go. And so it made me think that the stuff that I can just do naturally was not legitimate. It wasn't good enough. Or even that on some level that it wasn't art the same way other stuff is. And so I think that it's dangerous because a lot of times you figure that your gift is not enough, especially if you go into the classical world. Just like, you know, everybody's like, oh, if you really want to be a famous clinician, you have to go get a grad degree and it needs to be in this. And you can't just know how to do something. You can't just know how to do it. And But I'm teaching grad courses on the university level is what I was teaching at, on the university, at the University of St. Thomas in uh, Minnesota. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I've taught at several different colleges doing master classes, um, not necessarily on classical technique, on technique for what I do mm -hmm. is what people want. Um, I've done clinics all over the world at this point with no grad degree. That's amazing. I'm so glad that you have. Hey, it's Gwendolyn. If you think these conversations are important, be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at makingit.opera. That's making it without the G. You can also support the podcast by going to makingitinopera.com and making a donation. That's making it an opera, always without the G. And listeners, every once in a while, I want to make a podcast to just workshop this question with all of you. And for that, I need your help. Record a voice memo of yourself telling me what has been the most fulfilling thing you've done with your art and what it means to you to make it. And email that file to me at makingitanopera at gmail.com. Let's keep changing the narrative together. Okay, back to the show. I think it, like that word enough, that's something I was actually talking to some other friends who run a podcast about opera. <laughs> They're popping up everywhere. I'm just going to be one of them. Um, it was having this watershed moment where I realized I can't wait to be seen, to be okay, to be able to like have permission to make my art because there's there is not an enough that I can be. I will never be skinny enough. I will never have good enough technique. I will never know enough about the art form. It, like, there's not an enough. So just screw it. Like, I'm done. I'm out. Bye. I'm going to make my thing. Yes. I'm going to figure out what my thing is. Yes. And that's what, like, when did you come to that moment? When was that moment for you? 
that it gets to be easy. And what I want to do, whether it's legitimate or not, who gives a crap, I'm going to do it. I always felt it. Um, I think that there wasn't like this one singular aha moment uh, where I figured out this is exactly what I want to do. For the most part, I think that circumstances in my life worked out to show me this is what you need to do and you've always had. So my tour, case in point, um, I thought that my first time going on tour was going to be the chilling circuit, girl. I thought... Can you explain? Because I'm thinking we're going to have a lot of people listening to this who don't know what the chilling circuit is. So the chilling circuit, especially in gospel music, is... You go to all these different little churches, honey. A lot of them in the country, some of them in the backwoods. You go to these churches. We all know what it's like to go to a black church, honey. I'm going to tell you one thing they're going to do. They're going to feed you real, real good, but they might not pay you all your money, depending on where you're going. <laughs> and it's just because you don't have it. You know what I mean? So I'm thinking I'm going to have to do a lot of chitlin' circuit gigs. I'm going to be going from church to church to church, taking my group. I'm not going to be able to pay them for real. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to be broke. We're going to be riding around because that is the testimony of a lot of musicians up and coming, you know, when we're mm -hmm. starting out. I thought that was going to be my first tour. My first tour was an agency out of New York that represents groups like the uh, Vienna Boys Choir and Shanti Clear and the um, Alvin Ailey Dance Group and Yo-Yo Ma. They came to me asking to represent me. They flew down here. My agents, the best agents in the world. Um, they flew here to Augusta from New York just to meet me and Shanita, who's my manager, for us to perform for them. But they already pretty much knew that they wanted us. I can't describe how, how much validation I got from that, especially because I didn't know anything about Opus 3. And then I found out, one, we're the only gospel group on their uh, roster. They represent mostly classical singers, classical groups, and jazz artists. And some of these people are huge that they represent. And I am their label mate. Like, I'm on the label mate with them. First tour, everything was paid for from city to city. The hotels were nice. I'm not used to walking into a performing arts center and the people there are like, what would you like? What would be best? Would you like this? Do you want this? Oh, do you need 12 mics? We have 12 mics, blah, blah, blah. I'm not used to that. I'm used to, I thought I was going to get to that performing arts center and then people be like, all right, well, we're going to let you use our facility, but yeah. make sure, you know what I'm saying? It's just things like that, what happened. And that was kind of when I started to realize that everything that I am, everything I've been given was for this moment and that it was enough and that what I had to offer itself was special without all the education and the extra things. Um, I wish there was an aha moment, but there wasn't. It, I just did the work and looked up one day and was doing all of the things that I dreamed. And I want to say, like, I had been thinking about that and that this Opus 3 coming into your life this way 
and thinking what a full circle moment that is. Like you want legitimacy? Well, here you go. And an industry that was calling what you do illegitimate. And here they are like banging down your door. I think we have a lot to learn from that. There's actually a question. I was kind of unsure about talking talking about it with you, but there's a there's kind of a discussion that goes on in classical forums periodically about who should be singing gospel. And usually you walk away with, okay, maybe I shouldn't be singing gospel as a white lady. Like, but then when you like dig deeper in it, it's it's actually no, it's that we're not respecting this art form in the same way that we respect Puccini and Verdi. And looking back to like this conversation that we're having right now about this is legitimate, this is not legitimate, this is enough, this is not enough. So I'm I'm curious about your takes because you give whole clinics on singing gospel to a bunch of Polish people who I'm supposed to are white and like to French people like all over Europe because they they get the significance of it. They want to respect it. And so what is your what's your experience with that of like opening up the art form to other people, to other cultures? It is definitely I would say that over in Europe, they respect really anything that's not classical music as a legitimate art form. And they definitely do their best to uh, study things and approach them from an educational standpoint. But also, they like things that make them feel stuff. And I think part of the reason why they're so drawn to gospel music is because it connects with them, even if they're not Christian or even if they, you know, don't necessarily share the same belief system. They feel the passion. They connect with it. And I think that's what causes them to uh, chase after and study it for accuracy and want to know everything about it. Um, I think. In the classical world, one, our teachers scare us half to death about what we should be singing and what we should not be singing. So we are so afraid of causing damage or messing something up that a lot of times we won't try stuff, first of all. Um, Second of all, they kind of ingrain in us that this is the only way to do stuff. And I know lots of amazing classical singers who are also amazing gospel singers. They kind of scare us into what we should and shouldn't be doing with our voices. And so what ends up happening is we're afraid to step out and try things. And I would imagine, I mean, I'm African-American, so gospel is a kind of a part of who I am. But I would imagine if I didn't grow up in that tradition, that one, as a classical singer, a white classical singer, I would feel... um, I would approach it with trepidation because I would feel like technically I might be doing some things with my voice that I shouldn't be doing that aren't healthy, that could impact me later. And then I would approach it with trepidation just because sometimes I think people can make other cultures feel like they're appropriating something if they try for it. Mm -hmm. I feel like the opposite of appropriation is credit. So I think as long as you're given credit to where whatever you're doing came from, you're not appropriating it. You know what I'm saying? If I cite an author and I, you know, use their quote and give them credit for it, 
that's not plagiarizing. I've get I've said this is not mine, okay? Mm-hmm. But I'm using it to help uh, my argument. I think all of those things, one on one hand, keep people from trying gospel and other styles. But on the other hand, I think that some of those things are reasons why people should try and and mm-hmm. reach out and. I mean, as long as you give the proper credit, you're good. And to be honest, I have not had any vocal issues when singing gospel music. I can still do classical when I want to do classical. You know what I'm saying? I roll my eyes so deeply now when I hear that kind of talk, because I think (laughs) good singing is good singing. Basta. That's it. Like, if you're singing well and your apparatus is working well, then you can mold the sound you can you can take on different stylistic things people yes. who sing i'll never forget how a, how a man sounded when i was in seville singing um flamenco at first when i heard it i was just like whoa like what is, what is he doing in his throat oh my god it was so passionate i think i cried i cried like the whole time and i know this man is like probably in his late 50s early 60s he's probably been singing like that since he was five mm-hmm. he's fine good singing is good singing basta yes yes and i think i i love what you say about there are people not even just people who can sing gospel and it's part of their dna and they grew up with it i felt very similarly about musical theater and And just getting told by our industry or by our education system that they have to put that on the back burner. That's a thing that's not safe. What are we telling artists here? What kind of art are we making when we're telling our artists to silence who they are? And I don't know what that, I don't really know what that comes from. I know, I do know that Western musicians, we do tend to think that we are superior and that everything we do is the best and we know the best way to do everything. And I do feel like that is the stance of the classical world about a lot of things. I don't know where that came from because folk music is a part of every culture. Gwendolyn, I went to Denmark in 2019. Um, That was the last uh, overseas thing I did because literally came back from Denmark. And in February of 2020, Corona was like, sit down. But I was in Denmark. I was a clinician for this huge acapella music festival that they have over there. I got to meet the real group. The real group. I got to meet them over there and like hang backstage with them in the dressing room and everything because I was a clinician. They were clinicians. We were all together um, doing the same thing. But they sung some um, Nordic folk music there there's a big composer there he did the opening of frozen and he's known for some other movie scores that he's done and so there was this huge like 200 voice choir that did some nordic folk arrangements and they talked about the music that they referenced and where it came from this is european folk music do you know what it sounded like it sounded like someone took African tribal music and mixed it with Native American music and put it to it was this whole fusion and they didn't it wasn't all like super composed some of it was stuff that he literally took 
from the traditional folk music of those people, which tells me something as a person who studied a lot of different um, cultures and music. Folk music is something that has been in every culture. It originated from people, period, from humans. So why is it that we feel like anything that is not Verdi is not legitimate when we Verdi is a result of all of that other stuff. Everything that's classical started somewhere. It did not come out sounding like that. So I don't understand why there's this disdain for anything that is not classical or why some people look down on it when there would be nothing if that stuff didn't exist. I don't know where that comes from, but what I do appreciate is that in a lot of the classical circles I'm in now, people are working to undo that. Like next week I'll be in Iowa, I'm doing their ACDA. Um, so it's music teachers from everywhere. They come in to learn this good gospel. They want to have a mm-hmm. church service and everything with them there. They're having a real service that I have to teach them music for. And I really appreciate it because that is not something that we saw at all when we were in school. I mean, that that wasn't something even in high school that was encouraged. So I'm happy to see it, but I really don't know where that other mindset, I don't know where that mentality comes from. Colonialism, white supremacy. Um <laughs> I mean, I was going to call it. (laughs) I said it. I did. I mean, this, this whole, I love what you're talking about. um, When you talk about Western music being a performance and gospel music being an invitation to community. It's community. And I think that we have like, classical music and especially the way that it is that it is seen and has been formed in America it's something that like the whole opera world just kind of like had a big wake-up call summer of last year but it's been coming and it's it's that we we built a whole industry and a whole interpretation of what art is based off of who had the most money and who had the most status and who had like I think who had the most power mm-hmm. and all of those were white folks and at the time and it was like it was this way of like if you're in that culture there's legit there's legitimacy there there's power there there's money there mm-hmm. and it has been to our detriment I mean this conversation about how can opera be legitimate going back decades it's not how can we perform Aida differently it's like how can we stop thinking that this is that there's only one way to make this art form that's not art Art it does not have rules. Mm-hmm. Art has form, but art does not have rules. Like that, there's a huge difference there. And we raise our like we raise our young singers and our young our young musicians to think that there are rules and boxes that they have to fit in. We yep. literally call them fox. You're in a fox. A fox is a fox. Yeah. Go get into your box, little singer. That's right. That's right. 
you, I didn't you even know I'd be ranting so much. Thank you. <laughs> there's so much, and there's so much trauma in that. And I, and I don't, I don't fault the teachers because I no. think they really feel like they're doing what's best for their students. And um, especially the older teachers, because, you know, we had some some younger teachers come near the end of our time there at CSU who kind of had some different thoughts about some stuff um, and who were a little more open. But I definitely our older teachers, they wanted what was best for us. And I think, um, especially our teacher, I think he definitely gave us all of the wisdom that he had from his experiences. You know, mm-hmm. I, the way that he came up, all he could give us was his experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think that he gave us his very best in terms of his wisdom and his knowledge. And he genuinely wanted what was best for us. So, and I'm grateful for that. I think I can always see the intent behind anything. And I think his intent was for us to be great. And I think he it's he's accomplished it. But Absolutely. That, that entire way of thinking it's, it is dangerous. It is extremely dangerous because not everybody has the wherewithal to bounce back from it. And we do have several colleagues who are in careers now that they wish were different because they didn't have the wherewithal to go against the grain and to decide, I'm going to do me. I know what you say, but I'm going to do me. Mm-hmm. So I hope that I it's something some of that. That you can undo. Even with this, like with this podcast and a lot of things. So, oh, thank yeah. you. That's that's really what I'm thinking about when I when I'm doing this. It's partly to heal myself and to figure out like what my next step is. Because when you realize you can choose your own path, all of a sudden it's like you've got a blank slate. Like there's a there's a real comfort in an industry like opera that tells you get your undergrad you get your grad you do your gaps like you sing for your agent and unicorns and fairies fly out of your butt and you're like a big star singing with Joyce DiDonato like you think you think I have a path and it's laid out before me and then when you say that path is not working I'm now going to make my own life you're just standing in front of a blank sheet of paper and you're like what I've been standing in front of that blank sheet of paper for three years and I put some really cool shit on it. Like I made a family, I've made a a few projects that matter a lot to me, but I still don't really know what my path is. And maybe I'm just not going to know. Maybe that's not my path to know my path, (laughs) but I thought maybe I could start having these conversations and learning more from people who have really picked something and who are really in service to the greater community. Your path will make itself known when it's time. Mm -hmm. It is your job to do the work. Again, I always knew I wanted to be a singer. I knew that. But other than that, I mean, I had an idea of how things maybe could work out or should work out, but nothing I came up with was as good as what I'm experiencing, (laughs) first of all. Second of all, I was never so focused on the path. I was more focused on the work. Just do the work. I want to be a singer. So what do I need to do? I need to make sure that I am the 
best singer that I can be. That means going and getting educated about it, about classical styles, about country music, about whatever. I wanted to be good, period. So I just did the work to be good. I also wanted to help people. So I did the work to help people. You know what I'm saying? So in doing that, my path was revealed to me. And I'm going to be honest with you, girl. I know that there are things that I have been called to do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're my path. I've been called to do them, but that doesn't make them my path. So if you do the work, I swear, you're going to look up and you're going to be like, man, I did all this is amazing. This is great. This is so much better than anything I could have thought of. So just to encourage even anyone that may be listening, don't focus so much on the path. Just do the work. All you can do is what's in front of you. Just do it. I love that. And some of the, honestly, some of the coolest stuff I've ever done is just stuff that popped up right in front of me and something in me said, I got to do it. I got to show up for this. I wanted to talk a little bit more about community. I know so much of what has come together to be your path and being able to do the work in front of you has been your community. And I would love, I'd love to hear more about that because I think we, you are, you are the face, you are the star and that's wonderful. That's where you belong. I think that we in opera have a culture of lifting up one person and like opera takes hundreds of people to make. And yet the only people who have success in opera are the soloists standing there on in the front or the conductor there in the front. Yeah. And that's a really twisted way of thinking. And so I'd love to know, like, how is your path influenced by your community? Definitely. Um, well, I am a community builder. So typically, and it's been, I was like last week years old when I realized uh, that that's what I do, but I have always built environments around myself where I could uplift others, but also get the fulfillment I needed. So case in point, when I was four, the, the way my mom found out I could sing was at my preschool, I had pulled some of my friends during recess and started teaching them a song that I learned at church. Like harmony and everything, I'm teaching them the song. And the principal happened to find me doing this because she's trying to figure out why these little boys are not playing like everyone else. Well, she comes upon us singing and it's pretty good. So she puts me up to sing at our carnation and That was my mom's first time hearing me sing like solo. And she realized, oh, wow, he can really sing. Like she didn't know. Um, But that was kind of the first instance of me building my own community. Then when I got into elementary, middle school, I started a gospel choir at my school. And during recess, instead of playing, I had like 15, 20 kids on the bleachers with me in front of them. beating on the bleachers to keep rhythm, you know, but teaching them parts and harmony. Then in high school, I joined Creative Impressions and ended up becoming a student director. But also I started my own little gospel choir and all of my chorale friends were learning my songs and learning my arrangements. Then I get to college and 
really all of the music kids, I would say mostly the African-American ones, but you'd be right there with us at the piano, you know, singing and doing different things. I've always kind of created that environment around me. My whole life, I've always done that. And I think my biggest influence from that was church. Like the Black church is a lot like that. Like a deacon gets up and starts a song, everyone sings. Like it's not a, he's singing, performing for us. It's a community thing. And that's always been a big part of it. I think I just used music as a way to link people together. But I've always created, even in other environments, like non-musical environments, I tend to create um, a community. So that's kind of a gift that I have to be able to do that, that I didn't think was special. But um, Mm. apparently it is. I think the biggest joy that I get out of it is going into environments like Denmark or like Paris or Poland or even the different masterclasses I get to do all over the country with people who don't look like me um, is we may start off as strangers, but by the end of the experience, everyone is connected and people are crying and so sad that it has to end. And that is, that's what community is about is connection, bringing people together and The music is kind of the vehicle, but I think my entire spirit or my energy towards people and in willing that community thing to happen is also kind of what powers it. You know, the super spiritual people will be like, it's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me, which I also believe that as well. But I don't want to put off anybody that may not believe that way. So whatever you want to call it, my energy, the Holy Spirit or my positive outlook, whatever it may be, is kind of what has fostered a lot of that community. And I think it is crucial to being able to create the atmosphere that my music can create. Like, that's the main thing beyond the sounds. Absolutely. I hope I answered that correctly. Oh, there is no correct. And... uh... (laughs) spoiler alert you win the prize no but uh I've been doing a lot of thinking about that that way of thinking of like why we're here if you want to think of it as the Holy Spirit or you want to think of it as as source energy or whatever I'm starting to learn at least for myself that we are all plugged in at a different angle of God and that our expression is a is an expression that only we can have. And when we are able to boil it down to, to the most essential part, like what are the little like salts and minerals left in the bottle when we boil everything down? That's what we come to. You're a community builder. I have realized that I'm a storyteller. I have yes. another friend. She's, she's a healer. All of us are singers. There are different ways to do the thing that you're really here to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be singing. It doesn't have to be singing classically. It doesn't have to be like, we are not, we're not beholden to this kind of MLM structure that has kind of come up in the classical world for how you can get to be up on stage in that way. There's something that each of us are here to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what's, what's there for us to find out. What's really opened up for you choosing your path and living out your path in that way? Oh, and sorry, 
before I get you to answer that question, one other thing I just wanted to throw in there was you do build community. I have had the Zamar experience and I was up in the cheap seats. I'm not going to lie. Um, and with my little baby and my husband who was atheist and all of us, well, my baby was sleeping, but all of us <laughs> felt just embraced by you. We felt like we were part of something. Like we were looking at the people to the left and right of us and just like jumping up and down. Like it was, it was a true experience that I did not know I could have in a performance hall like that. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, whoever does your costumes, kiss them for me. They are so beautiful. Everyone on there looks so beautiful. Oh, me. Okay, I have a little. Uh, I have some help. Uh, I have a couple of my singers who kind of help me with styling, but pretty much all of the visual elements um, are my my vision. They kind of help me with the logistics of bringing things to life. And I'm blessed to have a really, really great team. Another community that I've uh, built, but I'm so grateful for them because. They're freaking amazing. They're amazing. Um, what was the other question that you asked me? I forgot. Uh, this, like, what is opened up for you by being true to yourself? Yeah. In this way, um, what's life like now? Basically, embracing embracing my path and then being true to myself. I think that I have opened up what I like to call my superpower. Because I think a part of, okay, so I have this theory that we all have something that drives us or that gives us the power to make things manifest. So me being true to myself and deciding on my path gave me the power to literally manifest the things that I have wanted. So people said, what are you gonna do when you graduate from college with this music degree? How are you gonna get a job, blah, blah, blah. And I said, it has to work. There's nothing else. This is what I want. That was kind of the beginning of me tapping into it when I've never had a normal job, ever. I've not had to get a normal job. All of my jobs have been musical and they have been sufficient because I believed it, right? Like embracing my path kind of gave me the power to believe in myself, to believe in my skill set, and to believe in my ability to impact people and to impact the world. And that has been the best revelation because in doing that, I've been able to build everything that I want to build, even better than I imagined it, you know what I'm saying, when I was a kid. So I would say in, in embracing myself and who I am, it has empowered me to believe in whatever it is I set out, set out to do. So yeah, I can't think of anything else like, you know, superficial that it opened up, but really I think the belief is kind of what has powered everything else that has come to me. Mm -hmm. I love you talked once about, um, about praying to God about where, like 
tell me what you want. Tell me what you want me to do. And God was like, tell was me like, what you want. You want? <laughs> Literally. God said to me, he said, what do you want? Because I had two paths before me. And to be honest, at this point, I don't even remember what I was trying to decide. I just remember me being like, God, please just tell me what you want me to do. And God was like, bruh, what do you want? What do you desire? Mm. And I had never been asked that before. And so for God to ask me what I wanted was one, a shock for me. I almost didn't believe it. I felt sacrilegious thinking it. Mm. But that was kind of the beginning of me being like, when he says he will give you the desires of your heart, especially if the desires of your heart line up not with selfish intent and not with evil intent. If what you want to do is good and what you want to do is good for him, he's like, bro, what you want? What you you're gonna my, my will is gonna be accomplished regardless whether you decide to do it or not the will is going to be accomplished how do you want to achieve this what do you want to do and um, to be honest he's asked me that a lot of times I think God has has definitely put me in a place to where when things come up and I say well what about this or what about that he's like what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And if it's something that's not for me, usually it either won't happen or it'll show up early. Like there'll be signs early on. Eh, maybe I should chill on that. So I so resonated with that. And also your journey to that, because we are asked so few times in our lives what we really want to the point where we feel like it's not even safe to do what we really want. Like actually what we want is not is not really right for us there's a there's a lovely philosophy of education kind of like Montessori called Reggio Emilio I think Emilia Emilio is literally based around that it is based around talking to the kids and asking them what they want to do and pursuing that with a structure and I am so in love with that idea because it it instills this respect in the kid for themselves mm-hmm. from such an early time that we have to like get somewhere in our thirties and realize, Oh, when I do shit, I don't want to do, it doesn't work out well. <laughs> Why don't I stop doing shit that I don't want to do? <laughs> That's right. That's right, girl. And at so this true. point in my life, I very rarely do stuff that I don't want to do. Now, there may be stuff that I am nervous about. I have some stuff coming up. I'm nervous about this Iowa ACDA thing. Just mm-hmm. I have nerves about it, but it's not something I don't want to do. And I, at this point, very rarely do things that I don't want to do because I don't have to unless I feel led. And if I feel led to do it, do I really not want to do it? Or do I really just not want to be inconvenienced? You know what I mean? So mm. I think once we figure that out, that that belief in yourself, that respect for yourself, I, I love the way you said that. Like It does instill a respect for oneself um, at an early age that 
I wish that I had because I think there are some lessons I had to learn the hard way about some stuff because I didn't have that uh, self-respect. But once you figure that out, I promise things will come together. Maybe not right away, but they definitely will come together. So beautiful. What I think, oh, we're getting to the end. So I want to know, we're recording this in July of 2021. Just want to be upfront with folks. I am probably not going to get everything together until September. That's just the way life goes. And the mother of a toddler. Um, but life has been changing for us so much in all these unpredictable ways. And I would love to know what has been the most beautiful thing that's happened over this past year where you've been all locked down and what are you looking forward to? Wow. Um, I would say the most beautiful things that have happened in terms of relationship with my family and a lot of my closest friends, I have become closer to them during this, which, um, I feel like I love people well, but I don't always, as well as it's perceived that I connect, the people that I'm closest to, I don't feel like I always connect with them. I don't feel like I always do the work mm. to connect with them. And this pandemic has made me evaluate that in a lot of ways. It's also helped me to learn because people are a huge part of why I am who I am. It has helped me learn to put people in their appropriate places in my life. And just because they might not be a good navigator doesn't mean that they can't ride in the car with me. They just can't ride up front. And it has enabled and empowered me to love them in spite of some stuff that ain't that great about them in terms of how they treat me. And then to watch them change from that love that is consistent. That has probably been the most beautiful and profound thing that I've learned during this uncertain time. And what I'm most looking forward to is one, being able to make music with all of the people I want to make music with again, but also the new and innovative ways I think that we're going to come up with to continue to make music just in case, because we don't know what way things are going to go. But I feel like as human beings, we are so inventive and creative that we will find a way to overcome insurmountable odds. So I look forward to all of the positive things that will come out of what does not seem like a great situation right now. Amen. Can you tell people how to follow you? How to go get the Zamar experience? <laughs> I am Trey McLaughlin on all social media. So I think God knew what he was doing when he gave me that name. So <laughs> you type in Trey McLaughlin, you can find me, TreyMcLaughlin.com. Anything Trey McLaughlin is pretty much me. There's only like one other and he's not making music anymore. <laughs> Surprise. Um, thank you so much. You got one minute until your next thing. And we got all the way through. We did. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having. I'm so proud of you. Oh, like this, you. you need to be doing this. This is. I feel like I told you that the last time. Like people need to hear you. They need to experience you. And because you have a breadth of knowledge of 
classical music, but you also have the exposure to the other things and you're open to it, people need to hear that voice. You're going to you're gonna help so many people and you don't even know it, girl. Thank you so much. And thank you for helping me do it. Wow, you guys, it's done. First interview in the can. I hope you enjoyed listening to Trey as much as I enjoyed talking to him. And listeners, in this conversation, we touched on the subject of cultural appropriation. I've since realized how important and deep this conversation actually is for all storytellers that I've decided a part two that focuses on it should come out in season two. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Also a reminder that you can get links to all things Trey McLaughlin in the show notes. Also in the show notes is the link to sign up for our newsletter, where you'll get a series of emails I'm calling the Audition Pep Talk series to remind you why you're out here making it and why your voice matters. If you sign up now in October 2021, they should get you through audition season. I also want to hear from you. Send an email to makingitanopera at gmail.com with a voice memo telling me what making it means to you. I may feature it in an upcoming episode where we can all workshop this question together. This podcast is a production of Sounds Like Cool, with editing by me and production help from Sarah Decker. Theme music is Our Block Party by Reactor Productions. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to subscribe, leave us some love on Apple Podcasts, and check us out on Instagram at makingit.opera to stay updated and become part of the conversation. You can also go to makingitinopera.com or follow the link in the show notes to support the podcast. I'm Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.